Episode 3, An Irish Devil's Coal, by R. W. Murphy. The bar area was a relatively large open space. Joe and I sat there chatting with the bartender. The woman with the child was kind of huddled off in a corner on the opposite side of the room. At about 11.30 p.m., I felt a tug at my elbow. It was the lady with the child in her arms. I was surprised by her approach, but even more surprised by what she had to say. There were never any introductions between all of us. She may have been listening to our conversation with the bartender. Whatever made her feel we were safe, it was still odd when she told Joe and me that she was going to a midnight church service nearby and asked if we would go with her and her child. There are three or four churches within reasonable walking distance of that corner of Beacon Street. The Catholic Cathedral would probably have been more a cab ride than a walk with babe in arms. As I ponder it today, it seems to me that is what she had in mind, but it could have been one of the other closer churches. The actual church is moot. We were hardly in the church-going mindset. Since it was now after 11.30, I told her that the best plan was for her to go ahead without us and we would meet her at the church shortly. I hope she did not reserve space in a pew for us, because we never showed. The services at Cheers at midnight seemed to fulfill our spiritual needs just fine right about then. Again, in retrospect, a sole young woman with babe in arms, seemingly alone on a dark Christmas Eve night, asking for the companionship of strangers, was it a lifeline being thrown by opposing forces to that of the fallen angels who had been guiding us so far? Had we accepted her invitation, would the balance of our trip turned out differently? To the former, most would only say, who knows? Although others, more inclined, would swear there was clearly a sign. To the latter question, there is actually very little to ponder. By spurning that woman's approach, we likely made the next few hours virtually inevitable. We were not aware, but we had clearly chosen a side. Since we were the only customers in the place, he was willing to keep serving us gratis, just to keep him company until his closing time, which was a few hours off still. In a brief moment of lucidity, in realizing it had now actually become Christmas per se, we opted to decline his generosity and began our egress back out of Boston. It was only about 12.30 a.m., late but reasonably explainable to our parents. It was hardly the first time we had partied together, and being MIA for a few hours wouldn't cause too much concern. Even so, it was somewhat rude that we didn't call to tell them all was okay. I knew it would not be all roses when we got back, but it was really a small sin and no one would want to make it bigger on Christmas Day. Besides, we had been successful in securing the present of all presents from the publisher's rep. Again, the beer logic, having now been made more profound by Scotch logic, 
allowed me to rationalize away how my mother might react to her eldest child and her youngest child, leaving her to worry for hours. I was pretty sure it was a survivable faux pas on our part. However, there were still more events to unfold that night that caused that conclusion to be far off the mark. I said earlier that part of this story is missing in my mind. It starts about here. Some might call it a blackout drunk. I personally don't think it rises to that diagnosis. However, what is absolutely undeniable is that roughly 12.30 a.m. to 1.30 a.m., December 25, 1985, is not recorded anywhere in my memory banks. As much as I have strained to recall that hour, it is indeed missing, apparently ad infinitum. What makes the missing hour the linchpin of this entire story is that as navigator on our jaunt, it was up to me to find a way from a barstool at Cheers to a warm, cozy bed 15 miles out in the suburbs. Joe had no experience with the subway system, and our route out would not be exactly backtracking the one we took in. None of the nearest T stations were the one we had used earlier in the morning. All I recall is telling Joe as we exited Cheers that we had to find the Park Street station on the opposite side of Boston Common. I knew from experience that most of the lines intersected there. That's pretty much when the lights go out for me. It is also where I ceded my navigation duties to Joe. However, my mother would shortly, and for many years thereafter, have more to say on that subject. It seems that the eldest sibling cannot abdicate, delegate, or otherwise fail to fulfill his or her familial duties, regardless of cause or motivation. My attempted justification for the events that were soon to unfold proved to be lame indeed, leading a younger brother into temptation, no matter how slight that temptation might be from his pre-temptation dispositions, was a mortal sin in the Murphy, Slant, McKinney psyche, as I was soon to find out. Maybe not really fair, but something that was hardly debatable in my mother's house at Christmas. To get to Park Street Station from that corner of Beacon Street, we have to cross diagonally, first the public gardens and then the commons. The two points are at opposite corners. Clearly reeling from the earlier afternoon and nights to botch, we must have looked like a couple of hoodlums at 12.30 in the morning. It is somewhat amazing to me that we did not have a more intimate discussion with a Boston PD cop that night, as we headed to Park Street. On the other hand, I am really not sure that we did not have that discussion. Somehow, with Joe now elevated to Navigator, we were able to find the Park Street T-Station. Even less probable, but true, inside the station we were able to find the Orange Line, the umbilical cord to the suburbs. With all the various lines connecting there, it wasn't an intuitively obvious task. 
in our state, following directional signs for the Orange Line platform through the station's maze was hardly any easier. Yet, somehow we did. I have made some guesses since. As we did our rolling Siemens walk across the parks, me with a huge book, we probably were spotted and stopped by a law officer of some sort. Joe was likely able to tell him or her why we were out and where we were attempting to head. Collaring a couple of loaded young tourists on Christmas morning was likely pretty low on his or her priority list, and since we were clearly not a threat and heading out of town, gave us a pass. With a little directional assist from a cop, making it to the Park Street Station was a lot easier. I don't know how Joe would have found it otherwise. By this point, I was no longer any help. Once in the station, I am not sure that Joe would have known to even look for the Orange Line. Indeed, the town to which we were actually going was not on the line at all. Joe would have had to know to look for Oak Grove Station on one of the lines. Again, guessing here, it is likely that either a subway employee or a good Samaritan pointed us in the right direction after we told them the town we were trying to reach. This was in the days of coin-like tokens, not metro cards, and it could have been the person from whom we purchased them who guided us. In the final analysis, Joe found the orange line with Oak Grove as its final stop, after meandering through the bowels of Boston's most complex subway station for a while. In and by itself, somewhat of a Christmas miracle. The fact that I still had possession of the book was a second miracle. At this point, it would appear that Lucifer might have been loosening his grip. Don't be so deceived. His hold was never diminished. That will become clear shortly. End Episode 3 An Irish Devil's Coal by R. W. Murphy